And welcome to The Green Front. I'm your host, Betsy Rosenberg, and I am thrilled to have back to The Green Front my favorite Republican friend, D.R. Tucker, who is, as I always say, a blogger extraordinaire, the most proliferative guy out there, a great aggregator of uh, all things green. And uh, he has a fabulous guest that he's lined up for us today, Michael Stafford, who's just written a column called The GOP Stuck in a Conservative Wonderland. We're going to talk with Michael in just a moment. In our second half, we're going to be speaking with the director of a fabulous new film that I just saw. It's a must-see. It's called The Island President. It's the story of President Nasheed, uh, the president of the Maldive Islands that are going under if we don't stop climate change now. And uh, it leads up to the Copenhagen uh, climate summit, and it's uh, it's moving, it's um, inspiring, it's uh, depressing, it's all those things. John Schenk is a fabulous director. He did uh, The Lost Boys of Sudan, so you won't want to miss that. We'll also be playing a clip from the film for you. That's in the second half, but first, D.R. Tucker, welcome back to the Green Front. Yes, uh, uh, how are you doing, uh, Betsy? Great. We want to talk about uh, Storm Rush and also all the killer tornadoes and twisters uh, in just a couple of moments. But uh, thank you so much for getting Michael Stafford on the show in uh, short order. He just wrote a great column, as you sent to me early this morning, and uh, here he is. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Michael and uh, what he has just written about, and then we'll jump in. Yes, yeah, yeah, so Michael is a former official of the Delaware Republican Party who uh, bore witness to some of the uh, drift into illogic of the Delaware Republican Party that precipitated the uh, nomination of Christine O'Donnell over Mike Castle in the 2010 Senate primary. He wrote what I thought was the best political book of 2011, uh, an upward calling politics for the common good, which dealt with the, the need to move the Republican Party back into rationality on science and a whole host of other um, uh, policies. So he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. Uh, he's, he's better than me as a writer, in fact, so I definitely <laughs> want to have him on. Thank you so much. Michael, are you with us? Today. Michael? Yes, I, I'm here. Thank you for having me on today. Thank you for this fabulous column. You talk about uh, sort of the um, political apocalypse, not just the uh, environmental apocalypse we're seeing. Uh, what prompted you to write this passionate and very um, eloquent piece? Mounting frustration, I suppose. I think I, I think that's a... That's a that's a that's a common theme. I think I think you know my my, my good friend Dr. shares that that mounting frustration. You know, I, for my own part, I'm a lifelong Republican. I, I grew up um, just passionately committed uh, to the Republican Party. You know, when I was in fourth grade, and I'm dating myself here, but that was the year that uh, you know 1984 was Reagan versus Mondale, and I remember going around to fourth grade because we were having a uh, like American Scholastic had a a mock election, and I was determined that Ronald Reagan was going to win Gilpin Manor's fourth grade classroom. And, and I, I approached it as if the fate of the entire world, you know, hung in the balance. So I, I'm a, I've been a passionately partisan guy. Unfortunately, the Republican Party that I knew and the conservatism that I knew, which was, you know, rooted more in, in Russell Kirk than, say, Ayn Rand, um, it's, it's been swept aside. And what we have today bears absolutely no resemblance to the party and to the conservatism, the ideology that I used to know. And so as I look at the country, and, and you know, I, I always write from the perspective of being a dad. I've got three kids. They inspire me in everything I do. And I look at my kids, and I think about the kind of future that they're going to have. And, you know, Umer Haik talks about a mixed future. Well, I'll be darned if my kids inherit a mixed future. I, I want something better for my kids, for your kids, for all of us. And so that's kind of the perspective that I'm coming from. And just sort of a sense of mounting frustration that the Republican Party is becoming more and more detached 
from solutions-based governance, from really trying to articulate a conservative answer to the various problems we're facing. And obviously climate change is one example. Immigration reform would be another. Um, the, 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 the budget debacle, it, the list goes on and on. But, but in each instance, we see a position taken for sort of uh, ideological, emotional reasons um, that doesn't really comport with any, any, any kind of good governance or, or that doesn't translate into a productive solution for the American people. And so the column came sort of out of that frustration. And I, I know you want to jump in in a minute, Dr. But I have to ask you first, Michael. The, the column is titled "GOP Stuck in a Conservative Wonderland." Where do they go down the rabbit hole? When did this happen? And, and was it any one event, or did while we were sleeping overnight, did uh, insanity set in? Gosh, you know, I I think well, you can you can point to 2008, and you can say, well, you know, it, it, I, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the movie 28 Days Later. Mm-hmm. Use that as a frame of reference for, for as I'm describing what happened since, since 2008, because in, in, in some ways, large segments of the Republican Party's base have become infected with the political equivalent of the rage virus. And there doesn't appear to be a known cure. We haven't stumbled across it yet. Um, but beginning in 2008 with President Obama's election, and, and look, let's be entirely honest, President Obama and the, the, the groups that propelled him to victory represent represent a vision of straight out of sort of a, a of your typical conservative's nightmare. I mean, he's African American, he's he's young, he's hip, he's urban. Um he's got a foreign sounding name. I mean these are these are things that, that touch on deep seated um anxieties in, in 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 you know a lot of people out there. And I think there was a lot of hysteria, you know, our our David Frum said that in in from two thousand and eight onward Republicans have been speaking about the Obama administration and what it's trying to do is if America was Czechoslovakia and it was 1948 and we were on the verge of a communist coup. And of course we're not. And I think you can critique the Obama administration without going into those, without lapsing into hysteria. So we can point to 2008 and President Obama's election. But, you know, if you, if you really, if you really dig a little bit deeper, I think the problems have been building for a long time. And personally, I go back to the mid 90s and the attempt to impeach President Clinton. And I think that was a critical moment where we crossed, we, we put it this way, we did terrible damage to the legitimacy of our governmental institutions, terrible and lasting damage. And that has sort of cascaded forward into the future. And I mean, the left's, in my opinion, done its share too. But I think, I think we can trace it back to that point, because that was so unlike that, that sort of witch hunt was so unlike um, anything that had happened during the Reagan administration, in, in, at least in my opinion. It's ironic that you mentioned that, that you said the Clinton impeachment as, as, as the start of the GOP sort of deviation from reality, because I, re- I remember after the impeachment failed, Paul Weyrich, the, the, really the godfather of the Christian right, wrote a piece, an open letter to the conservative movement, where he basically declared that the culture war had been lost, and that if there were really a moral majority in the country, there would have been a national demand for Clinton to to be to be forced out of office. And I, and I read that open letter, and I thought to myself, it was true beyond any debate, and yet, this is during the early days of Free Republic, and the people in Free Republic attacked him and said, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, even though everything he said in that open letter was true. And I think back that that was the point at which you started seeing this move away from reality. 
Yeah, I'm familiar with the letter, and, and I completely agree. I completely agree. But, you know, the fact that we framed it as a culture war was a mistake from the beginning. Because, what we, what, you know, we were a lot of some of what we framed as cultural issues as an us versus them, you know, the real Americans versus, I, I, don't, I don't know what progressive folks are, communists, the, traitors. The radicals, what, you know, radicals. Right, the radicals, throwing your epitaph. I mean, it, whatever, whatever floats your boat. But it, 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 it sets it up, and, and, and it, 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 it's, a, it's a duopoly that, that's, that's going to lead to radicalization because, you know, when you're at war with people and when the fate of the future hangs on the balance in every little issue, um, and when your enemy isn't, you know, a person of goodwill who disagrees with you, and, and God knows none of us have all the answers, and very smart and very intelligent people who care profoundly about the world have been wrong a great many times. If history teaches us anything, it's that. So unless we're completely arrogant, we have to concede the possibility that we're probably wrong about a great many things. But you don't, you don't get that, can, that kind of good faith engagement. You don't get that kind of openness and willingness to listen without which, you know, a real dialogue on any issue isn't possible. Instead, what you get is political combat, and politics becomes a war, and you end up with very, very radicalized fringes dominating the dialogue and the great mass of the people just having opted out and you know, sort of grown sick of it all. The fact that we're having, you know, controversy over contraceptives in 2012 as the planet burns rather than a con- serious conversation about climate change, I think, says a lot. Oh, I would, I, would, I would agree with you. I mean, climate change, gosh, you know, you're you, you all doing the Lord's work with, with trying to put that issue out there. It's a, it's a tough issue. It's something that, and, I, and, I, and DR can probably speak to this and probably has spoken to this in the past, but it's one of those things where the minute, you know, when, when you're a Republican or when you, when you identify yourself as a conservative, um, and I haven't ceded that term entirely to them yet, to the Denzians of Wonderland. I, I still call myself that, but I mean Russell Kirk, not Glenn Beck. Um, but when you call yourself those things, when you, when you say, look, I think climate change is probably real. I mean, there's a giant corpus of evidence out there that shows that this theory is, is, is probably true. We can say with a great deal of confidence that these things are happening, that it matters to me that the great mass of scientists doing research in this area and all the world's major scientific academies have looked at this and said, this is going on, this is real, it's a problem we need to address. But when you say that as a Republican, you're instantaneously outside the tribe. You're instantaneously, you, you have just spoken an unspeakable word, and banishment is your sentence. Look you, at John you, Huntsman. Exactly, exactly. And Huntsman's failure, you know, you can, you can look at John Huntsman in a couple of ways. I mean, he never, he never really caught on in the polling 2 3% for it on his better days. Um, now, certainly that campaign had issues. I, I think back to the announcement in New Jersey where they were passing out promotional materials that had John spelled J-O-H-N. Now, that is not an auspicious beginning to a presidential campaign. Um, but, but that said, he was, he was the one candidate who sort of, with one tweet, which I thought was the, the greatest tweet ever put out on Twitter, you know, really, really went straight at this sort of dead-ender, old believer, I don't know what to call it, uh, anti-intellectual group that's got control of the GOP, and he hit them on both um, evolution and on climate. Um, and it didn't really, it got impressed, but it didn't, it didn't get him anywhere, anywhere in the polls. Um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think most, probably, we're in a situation where, you know, some, some liberals sometimes say, and I, and I still hear this, that the Republican Party is a political party that has a, uh, a cable news station. It has Fox. 
And I think, in fact, the situation is reversed. There is a conservative entertainment complex that's the major doyens of talk radio and Fox News and some, some of the major national bloggers that have a political party. And if you look at who sets the agenda, who defines what it is to be a Republican and to be a conservative, who frames the response to specific issues, who drives what the major issues of the day are for Republicans, overwhelmingly, it's not folks in Congress. It's not our, our elected governors out there in the states. It's these major media figures. Um, and, and, they're dry, and they're entertainers, which is the part that a lot of people don't seem to quite to quite get uh, and they're 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 going to be sensationalists and they're more interested i think in their own audiences than in advancing you know good works for the nation and so in fact, we're you talk in this about, situation you talk about conservative wonderland having its own version to the queen of hearts just the very um people you're talking about and let's uh talk for a moment about the king of talk and and rush limbaugh and uh, the storm around that this week uh are you surprised that there's a backlash finally to his, you know, he crosses the line so many times? And, and what do you say to those of us who feel like he should have, you know, um, been taken to task for other things he said, including calling, um, you know, very respectable uh, atmospheric scientist Catherine Hayhoe a climate babe not so long ago? Well, you know, I have, I have great respect for, for Catherine. I actually wrote an op-ed about that, too. And uh, it's insane. He looked the guy's a misogynist. And he's speaking to an audience, you know, picture, picture, picture your typical Rush Limbaugh listener. This is a guy who maybe life didn't quite work out for. They're, they, they've got a lot of anger inside them, anger towards modernity. I don't, I don't know what it is, fill, fill in the blank, but they're sitting in their car and when they hear that kind of, that kind of comment, when they hear somebody, you know, a, a smart, bright, intelligent lady derided as a climate babe, what do they do? They snicker and they sneer. That right there, that that is the essence of what we're trying to deal with within and the Republican Party. Right hate mail too. And they and they yes, exactly. There's a lot of apparently apparently there are internet connections in the survivalist bunkers where all these guys live. They, they're able to they're able to get online and fire off emails. So <laughs> Well, I just got a response from Catherine Hayhoe just about an hour ago. I asked her if she had any thoughts on, you know, what what's happened with Rush and she said she did note that this is a quote here, I did note the similarity in tone, although thankfully not in virulence, between the comments made about me and those about Sarah Fluke. It seems fairly clear that he has a history of disrespect for women and uses sexual or gender specific slurs to denigrate those with whose opinions he disagrees. But look, I mean, this is broader than, I mean, he's, he uses taglines and he tries to walk right up and code speech and he tries to walk right up to a line um, where he's sending signals to his listeners. He's sending signals to, you know, misogynists who don't like intelligent women. <laughs> just like he sends signals and just, I mean, think about Newt in the, in the South Carolina primaries with the talk about um, food stamps. He's using code speech to send signals to racists. You know, somewhere out there, there's an African-American getting food paid for by your tax dollars, and that's a, that's a terrible thing. And so, to those, even progressives who just dismiss him as, you know, an entertainer, there's nothing funny about what he and his ilk are saying and doing to foment, you know, this divide, this polarization, especially while we have, just to name the one I think is the most pressing, you know, this planetary crisis. We're losing precious time. Well, absolutely, and that's, that's, that's the bottom line. These issues have to get, look, unless you want a mixed future, Unless you want a world 20 years from now where our kids are facing or looking at diminished horizons, diminished opportunities, with more inequality and a messed up planet, you have to take action now. 
It's going to be too late. It's going to be too late 20 years from now. And while all this brouhaha's going, sorry, go ahead. No, and that and that's that, that that's 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 why it's so critical. Absolutely. You know, meantime, more tornadoes and twisters have hit the heartland. Uh, ironic name for what area keeps getting hit by these killer storms, given the Heartland Institute's denial of climate change. Uh, and these poor people are getting, you know, killed, losing their livelihoods, their lives, their towns. And, you know, we can't prove, of course, that it's um, a definite result of climate change, but it could very well be the very kind of more intensive, damaging, destructive storms that climate scientists have been predicting. I mean, for those of us who connect the dots, who see the world through green lenses, whether we want to or not, it's the height of irony and tragedy that, you know, while these things are happening, people are still actively denying that it's real, and while we're being sidetracked with these red herrings. Oh, absolutely right, and and it's 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 remarkable that how to put it that you know when you look at the critiques that are put out there by some of the major uh, people in the in sort of the denial industry, you know again and again we see the same things. We see people if they are scientists, they're not scientists that work on climate issues. They're speaking sort of outside their expertise, you know, which I always analogize to having like a chiropractor write a paper about the latest cancer treatments, you know, they they may be a medical professional, they may have some advanced education and training, but they're not talking about the issue they work with every day. Or they take, take specific data points and they try to create doubt about that and they ignore sort of the broader picture. I mean, for, for me, one of, the, one of the things that made the realization that, that, that climate change was probably happening so compelling was... You know, if you're going to be a denier, you really have to develop a theory, a comprehensive theory for all the observable data across a range of different areas that we've collected through the years. Now, climate change, anthropogenic climate change, explains that data in a coherent way. It's not enough to pick one data point and say, well, you know, the, the ice melt in the Arctic really is not this bad, it's only that, that bad, or, you know, the, oh, look at the medieval warm period. They were, they were these strange forms of beetles in, like, Midlands in England, and that's not enough. You've got you've to create a coherent theory that explains all the data, and that they have completely failed to do. And at the end so. of your article, I love what you said about rhinos, which you describe uh, as thought criminals, uh, the acronym, of course, standing for Republicans in name only. And you say, quote, the far right would drive the GOP over a cliff and take America right along with it. It's up to responsible Republicans to take back the wheel and steer a different course. Today we have an opportunity to challenge the prevailing orthodoxies and articulate an alternative vision of conservatism, one that is forward-looking, intellectually honest, and solutions-based, one rooted in the real world, not conservative wonderland fantasies and hysteria. If we're rhinos, then it's time for us to turn at bay and charge. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well put. Uh, any, what kind of response are you getting so far? I know it just came out this morning. Well, you know, so far, it, it, it very good. I mean, the, the 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 syndicate that I write those columns for, those they they run in local newspapers, you know, across the country. For some reason, I, I tend to run a lot in, in Louisiana, Arkansas, um, some states in in the Midwest. Um, but they're they're available to a, you know hundreds of papers, so you never know who's going to pick it up um, until. A couple of days later, but the feedback's all all very good. The people that follow my writing on a regular basis, I've been hitting a lot of these themes for for, for probably about um, two or three years. I mean, like Dr. mentioned in the intro, I was kind of one of the people sort of at ground zero of the Christine O'Donnell um, phenomenon, and I had a, a a front row a front row seat on that debacle and uh, sort of on the rise of the Tea Party, and it it, it gave me 
you know, a very, very unique perspective. So I've been, I've been banging this drum for a while. Um, the, the key thing really is, you know, we've got to get, um, we've got to take advantage of the communication technologies out there. You know, the, Co- the Koch brothers aren't going to fund me uh, in my crusade to take back the Republican Party. And speaking we of don't have parties, money. We don't have resources. You know, Michelle Bachman was on uh, Pierce Morgan the other night. I just have to note this <laughs> ironic twist. And yeah. he really spent the better part of the first half of the hour, you know, of course, going uh, railing against Obama as, you know, the, the biggest threat to humanity ever lived. And uh, then when Pierce Morgan says, well, she's a bit judgmental, and that was actually in response to her position on gay marriage, uh, she looked genuinely surprised and a bit aghast and said, me, judgmental? I'm not judgmental. She almost walked off the set. It's like, oh, my God, talk about out of touch with your own reality. Well, that's exactly it. And, and like, I, the, the experience, I think, that we have, um, that folks like us have in the Republican Party today is, you know, we know something's wrong. Um, there's tremendous pressure. Remember Reagan's 11th commandment, don't speak ill of any fellow Republican. There's tremendous pressure put on us to conform, to stay silent. Um, to just kind of go along to get along. Uh, if you stand up and you start talking about these kind of issues, you're going to lose friends. You might not get invited to some of the same dinners anymore. Um, and so, so there's there's a lot of reasons, and 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 there's a lot of reasons to stay silent. And we're 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 isolated. I mean, there isn't there isn't a national organization or group or a page or a site that people who feel this way can go to. So I'm a disgruntled Republican. I'm concerned about the 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 the, the hard right turn the party has taken. How do I network with people, people that share that concern? How do I do that? And so I think one of the things we're trying to do is to begin to utilize some of those new media kind of technologies to enable that kind of networking so we can all go out and, go out and find each other. You know, there, there's a model um, out in Washington State. Uh, they have an organization called Mainstream Republicans of Washington. And it may be a model that other people in other states or even nationally need to look at because, you know, they created this organization to keep the party from going hard right. And I, I forget the specific year, but at some point in the 80s, I think Pat Robertson won the Republican presidential primary out there in Washington state. And many people were aghast at this because there was no way that a candidate like him was going to carry the state in a general election. So they, they revitalized this organization. And the idea was, you know, we need to run people of good character who fit the who fit the profile of their districts and can actually win, you know, win elections. And they've done a pretty good job of keeping the, the, the state Republican Party in Washington more mainstream um, than it's been in, than it's become in other states. But I think that's, that's one potential model. The, the, the bottom line is if we're isolated, if we're off on our own, wringing our hands, we don't have a chance. We've got to come together. We, we've got to find somewhere where a standard's been planted that we can all kind of rally around before we have any hope of, of turning back the tide. Here, here, and we're, we're out of time, but I just want to leave you with this last question. Uh, your book is called An Upward Calling. If you could give us a quick summary of what that is about. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's about the need for politics to advance the common good. Uh, the basic message is, you know, Aristotle asked, you know, a very old question back in ancient Greece, how are we to live together? And the, the answer, uh, the political answer, that's the question at the heart of politics, the answer is pretty radical, with love. And everything else in the book is just kind of working out that idea across a range of policy areas. 
Michael Stafford and Dr. Tucker, if all Republicans were as brilliant as you two, I might just change my vote. <laughs> start voting Republican, but I, I don't think uh, there's any danger of that happening anytime soon. Thank you so much for your thoughts and uh, your great column, Michael and Dr. as always, Thanks. for your brilliance. Thank when you we both. come back from the short break, we're going to be speaking with uh, a brilliant director, John Shank. He's just uh, coming out with a new movie called The Island President about the struggle to save the Maldive Islands. You won't want to miss that. Be right back. But we can turn it around, and if anyone can, it is uh, President Nasheed of the Maldive Islands. I just saw a film that is my favorite current movie called The Island President, and uh, he is my hero now. And the man who made that movie possible, who got